welcome to All the Light We Can Carry. My name is Marilee Stark. I am Linnea Brand. And I'm Leah Wilcox. And today we are talking about honesty, and in particular, honesty as it relates to our search for wisdom. And to kick, kick us off today, I wanted to just share some threads of experience and thought that have led me to want to talk about the topic, topic of honesty. So I think the first thing was that I was thinking about wisdom and I was thinking about the idea that if I was to say today, today is the day that I want to start on my journey of wisdom and of collecting and gathering wisdom and becoming more wise. And I thought, well, if I wanted to do that, what would my starting place need to be? Where would I need to start? And I considered quite a few different starting places, but with each one of them, I kept asking myself, well, but would I need to go back further? Is there something more foundational, something more uh, fundamental as really a better starting place for wisdom? Something that that would be absolutely essential and I, I wouldn't be able to collect wisdom or understanding if I didn't have this thing in place. And the thing that really came to my mind was honesty and particularly the ability to be really relentlessly honest with myself just seemed like, yeah, that would be the essential thing. And so I, I want to talk about that, but kind of at the same time as I was thinking about this journey of of wisdom and how honesty would be essential to it, I also <laughs> have been just noticing how how neglected honesty is in our world, uh, particularly in our the political landscape, the media landscape. But it's probably not fair to say it's just there, but that's the place where it, it drew my attention, where I was like, we don't seem to be valuing honesty at all. <laughs> and and I felt I felt this real tug at my heart, like this is more of a tragedy than I would have thought at first glance. And so that kind of led me to think about like, how have I been thinking about honesty and dishonesty and, and why have those two things been neglected essentially in in my thoughts and in my searching, I guess. So I started thinking about honesty and dishonesty as, as like characters in a book. <laughs> and right away you notice, you just think about that for a minute and you're like, okay, so dishonesty is the much more interesting character. <laughs> you're much more interested in what dishonesty is doing, you know, because <laughs> truly the image that came to my mind is kind of like a 1950s cloak and dagger character with their trench coat and the collar up and the hat on the hats pulled down so you can't really see their eyes and maybe all you can see in the facial areas is the glow of a cigarette <laughs> they're so mysterious and and you know they're doing you know malevolent things and getting away with it <laughs> <laughs> and so you're you're kind of interested in that character and and then you think well what what character would represent honesty <laughs> and you know it's a little more bland right 
the the image that came to my mind was just a, a little brown bird that <laughs> doesn't draw any attention and sometimes comes to my window and says, you know, sings a little song and says, hey, I'm here. <laughs> but kind of a humble little character that is easy to overlook. As I started thinking more deeply about it and I was like, okay, well, if honesty is one of the essential starting places of wisdom, then it has to be a lot more important with a lot more depth and breadth than I've given it. And, and also, as I started noticing just how, how I think what a devastating effect our lack of honesty is having on our society, the next kind of layer of thoughts that came to my mind was, well, I shouldn't be surprised that dishonesty it has such like a, a nefarious effect because if you look at, you know, sacred texts or religious traditions, Satan, who you could metaphorically say is the darkest thing that people could imagine, has several names. And one of the names is that he is the father of lies. And so the wisdom of our ancestors, the wisdom of these sacred texts say that the, the darkest thing that we know is the father of lies. And if I think about that and I think, okay, so, so lies represents the darkest evil that we can think of or comprehend or imagine. There has to be like an equal and paralleling power or light. And it's interesting that that is tied up in honesty, truth and honesty and so all of that just made me, this is a very long way of saying, I'm really interested in unpacking this subject and looking into it and finding out, well, why is this so important? So I, I have a question for you. I, in that process that you went through where you're contemplating how to have greater wisdom and you came to honesty, like, how do you define wisdom when you're seeking for wisdom? What does that mean to you? I'm just curious how you came to honesty. So if you could kind of like define, well, here's wisdom to me. And this is how I feel like honesty became, became, became like this crucial aspect or principle involved in how I could get wisdom. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because it, it really does tie right in because you think the opposite of wisdom or one of the things in opposition to wisdom would be to be deceived wisdom means that you see clearly and that you see things that are real in opposition to that would be to be deceived to be lost to be experiencing darkness and confusion all of which can come about because of deception and, and dishonesty. Mm. Did you did um did you know that it, the wisdom or the word wise is tied like etymologically <laughs> to being able to see? Did you know that, no, or is that I just didn't. how you? Oh, it is. It, it is. So uh huh. You're so yeah. smart. We'll share that with us. Tell us. Yeah, something. I'm just wondering about the rest of it because when I think about wisdom, it it's not just being able to see clearly, but it's having enough experience 
like enough practice to use that site well. You know, not so, only can you see well, but you but you know and you're practiced enough to do well. So you tie wisdom to experience then, if it's practice. I, I do with yeah. I you just can't be wise without having experienced for a while, I think. I, I think it's tied together like you know, somebody will try to teach you something and if you just if you don't have enough of experience, like experience becomes a framework that gives you a place for that knowledge. And without yes. the framework of experience, you don't have a place to put that. And it's just this abstract thing that you don't know right. what to do with it. Yeah. And so yeah, I think you're right that it is kind of the coming together of of experience and truth that gives you the wisdom to navigate. Yeah, I think that both are essential. That's really interesting because so as soon as you as soon as you gave us this introduction and you were tying wisdom to honesty, I was like, what? How would you define wisdom? And often when I want a definition, I just look at the etymology because it's a word that I, I'm fairly familiar with. So I kind of feel like, yeah, I could define it, but where does it come from? And both of those concepts, both experience and seeing are etymologically a part of the word wise, which Yay! <laughs> yeah, so interesting. And um, so one of the roots, and I won't go into all the, I think it's the German, W-E-I-S-E, which I don't know how you pronounce that in German, but wise is how we say it. It's from the root W-E-I-D or wide, which is to see or hints to know. And it's also tied to experience, having the power of discerning and judging rightly. So interesting that you both had just sort of a sense of that without really technically know, <laughs> knowing the etymology or definition of the word. So that's always so validating. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that happens. That's cool. <laughs> well, to kind of start there, I mean, there's so many starting places to try to start to unpack this. But one of the things that I was thinking about was when we're being dishonest, what what is really happening? <laughs> what are we really doing and what are its consequences? And so it seemed to me that when you're being dishonest, you're you're hiding something or you're distorting something. There's something you don't want to see yourself or you don't want somebody else to see. And so in order to hide that thing, you you're dishonest. And, and I had this sense of like if an image to me that would kind of show that would be when we are dishonest, it's like putting on a pair of sunglasses because there's just something we don't want to look at. We don't want to see it. We don't want, or we're putting sunglasses on somebody else. And the, what's interesting though, is that if you think about that, so there's something you don't want to see. So in some way you hide it or you distort it. And then what is your new reality? Well, your new reality is darker and distorted. And so that then kind of in turn makes you prone to more dishonesty <laughs> because you are functioning in this arena of distortion where you've, are, you've purposely made it so you can't see. 
and that would incline you to more distortion. Does that make sense? It does. I'm thinking there was a time in my life where I, well, I was diagnosed as being extremely myopic, like, as a matter of fact, so I was like, I'm trying to remember if it was high school or middle school. I think it was middle school. And the optometrist said, actually, you're legally blind. And the glasses that I had to wear were so thick. And, you know, this was back in the 80s. And at that moment in my life, contacts just weren't presented as an option. You know, wearing the glasses made my eyes look like tiny little I was embarrassed to wear them. And I was also very shy. <laughs> so, and I realized like there was just this startling moment when I wore glasses, I could see everything and everybody where I hadn't before. And my school experience, my social experience at that time was uncomfortable enough. I didn't want to, I didn't want to see everything and everybody. It was actually more comfortable to just not wear the glasses. Which is why the optometrist ultimately, and you know, when he found out, he's like, you're legally blind. Why aren't you wearing your glasses? Well, I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see people looking at me, you know, this fear of being judged or whatever. Anyway, sort of relevant. That's where I went when you're talking about putting on sunglasses, hiding the truth from yourself. Well, I think it's totally relevant because I think that's exactly what we do, that whether it's uh, pride or fear or just whatever, we don't want to see something about ourselves or about some favorite agenda. <laughs> uh, and so we just are like, no, let, let me, let me stay myopic <laughs> because it's painful to look at those things. So you have dishonesty is distorting and it's darkening. And it means that we can see less, which inclines us then to even more mistakes, more stumbling, more deception, self-deception, and being prone to, to the deception other people are imposing on us as well. I think that kind of wrapped up in that as well is, is our human desire to be right. We want to be right so much <laughs> that we, when we do something wrong and we know it's wrong, immediately we want to justify it and we want to say, no, but it was right. <laughs> it was right for this reason or that reason. It had to be. And so you combine those things and you can see this, this spiral. So first you're dishonest. And then because of that dishonesty, you're blinded. Your view of everything is distorted. And then you justify yourself and you kind of double down on the distortion and you insist that your distortion is true and real and so then you exempt yourself from having to examine this distortion, you know, and you can see where that can like spiral into, you know, a darker and darker and darker place that can have devastating effects like personally and, and societally. In my mind, and I kind of am a little uncomfortable sharing it because it's about a specific individual, whereas I feel like what you're describing is something that to whatever extent, to whatever degree, is probably, if not universal, at least really common. I think I've experienced, you know, not being honest with myself. And I, I've read how how a lie 
no matter what kind of light it is, begets another lie, you, you become enslaved to the lie. So you either have to release it <laughs> and accept truth in its place, or, you be, or you're in bondage to it. And this is, this is an experience that Dita Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints shared. And it's in a discourse that's entitled Truth Endures. He worked on the Watergate case, and he shares kind of his perspective. Okay. Early in my legal career, I saw up close the tragic fruits of ignoring conscience, which I think is another way of saying choosing a lie over honesty. I was the law clerk to U.S. District Court Judge John J. Sirica in Washington, D.C. The national scandal known as Watergate began shortly before my clerkship started, and the court proceeding related to Watergate occupied Judge Sirica's time, I hope I'm saying that right, and therefore my time almost entirely for the next nearly two and a half years. Without rehearsing the details, I will simply say that in 1972, operatives from President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, the Committee to Re-elect the President, using break-ins and eavesdropping, tried to steal information from the Democratic National Committee. Arrests were made, and an effort began almost immediately to hide any connection of these illegal activities to President Nixon's campaign or any White House official. This cover-up, isn't that so often what is constituted in a lie, is hiding or covering up, constituted a criminal obstruction of justice, and it grew to include even President Nixon. It seemed to me that there were many points over the next two years before he resigned when Nixon, with an awakened conscience, could have called a halt, saying, this is not right, we will not continue, let the chips fall where they may. And he might well have outlived the political embarrassment and then and the inevitable criticism and finished his term, but he never did say stop. Instead, he got deeper into the cover-up conspiracy himself. The low point for me was when Judge Sirica and I listened to a recording of a conversation that took place on March 21st, 1973, between the president and White House legal counsel, John Dean, in the Oval Office. Dean had been managing the cover-up within the White House, and he felt it was beginning to unravel. Now he had come to ask Nixon for direction. In this recorded conversation, Dean laid out what had been done during the preceding several months, including arranging for money to be delivered to the families of those who had pleaded guilty to the Watergate break-in. The money was given to buy their silence regarding higher-ups at the committee to re-elect the president who had planned and ordered the break-in, but now they were threatening to talk because the money for their families was not forthcoming or was not as much as they felt had been promised. Judge Sirica and I were shocked as we heard Nixon calmly ask, how much money would it take? By his tone of voice, Dean himself seemed surprised at this response, and with what felt like a number plucked out of the air, he answered, a million dollars. Nixon responded that it would be no problem to raise that amount, but he worried about how it could be distributed without being traced. The judge and I couldn't believe we didn't want to believe what we were hearing, and he passed me a note suggesting we rewind the tape and listen again. We finished listening to the conversation, and then, without saying much to each other, put the tape away and went home early. Even now, I remember the sense of disillusionment and sadness. This was some months before Nixon's resignation, but we knew then that the president would be impeached if he did not resign first. I wondered at the time and have since why Nixon allowed the scandal to grow and fester. I still feel surprised that over time his conscience could become sufficiently numb that even the attempted blackmail of the president of the United States by the Watergate burglars did not arouse any indignation in him 
The life lesson I took away from this experience was that my hope for avoiding the possibility of a similar catastrophe in my own life lay in never making an exception, always and invariably submitting to the dictates of conscience, putting one's integrity on hold even for seemingly small acts in seemingly small matters, places one in danger of eventually losing the benefit and protection of conscience altogether. I'm sure that some have, quote, gotten away with it in the sense that they acted dishonestly or illegally in business or professional or political life and have never been made to account, at least in this life. But a weak conscience and certainly a numbed conscience opens the door for water gates, be they large or small, collective or personal, disasters that can hurt and destroy both the guilty and the innocent. That's crazy. <laughs> but doesn't it, I feel like it matched what you just said about honesty and kind of getting in that hole and getting darker and darker and cycling. So where it might have initially even been a small discrepancy or a small lie, it grows <laughs> and, and more darkness comes until there's even a numbing of conscience. Like we can't, we don't even perceive anymore just how dishonest we're being because we put ourselves so much in the dark. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about numbing. I, as I was thinking about honesty and looked at several things, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson, and he has a lot to say about honesty, a lot that I want to kind of draw on today. But he, in a lot of the things that he says, he essentially is saying that honesty is the antidote to tyranny, and dishonesty is the thing that leads us to hell. The, the, the human hells that we create... Uh, here on earth. And I think it's partly because of that numbing that you just mentioned that we, we distort and distort and distort our reality until we're so far removed from anything that is true that we're justifying and doing things, you know, that our previous self or, you know, that our that, best self, right? Yeah, would never have imagined we were capable of doing. And would have been shocked at some point in our lives that we could descend so far. And so, and he, I have to say, he is one of the other reasons, Jordan Peterson is one of the other reasons that honesty has really been on my mind. And I, I wonder if we just take the next few minutes and talk about, first, what are some of the, the effects that we see, the destructive effects that we see from dishonesty? And then I'll, then second, maybe look at what are some of the subtle ways that we get caught up in dishonesty ourselves, you know, that we overlook too easily? So if, if we start out with what are some of the effects personally and societally of dishonesty? And one of the things that came to my mind was the song, The, the Foolish Man Built His House Upon the Sand. <laughs> You know, and when the rains come tumbling down, then the house washes away. That relates to honesty for me because I am feeling a great deal of instability in our nation uh, to the point where it's very disconcerting. And I feel like it's so linked to dishonesty. You you watch the news, you listen to people, politicians maybe in particular, talk and you're like, what is true? <laughs> what is really going on? I, I don't have a sense that you're telling me the truth, but I, ha I have no sense of what the truth might be. I could only guess. 
And, and that happens because people are saying one thing, but I'm seeing another, my own eyes are seeing something that's very different than what they're saying, <laughs> you know, and in that space, there becomes this great instability. And you think about the essentialness of trust, which would be in opposition to dishonesty as well for any relationship, a husband-wife relationship, relationship with your children, coworkers, and then a societal-wide relationship, like trust is essential. And when you get to the point where you're, you're like, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's true, then that trust is broken. And your society is on that sandy foundation. And you have a sense of like, if this keeps up and none of us knows what is really true and what is really real, there's no way for us when the winds come and the rains come and, you know, for us to withstand that because of this really shaky foundation will all come tumbling down is my sense. And then honesty would be in opposition to that would be a sure foundation because you are like, ah, yeah, like just saying that it made me think of like a, a time recently talking to an employee and it was a painful situation and I really, really wanted her to tell me the truth. That's what I wanted. I didn't care what the truth was. I didn't care if it was painful because I knew if she would tell me the truth that we could then navigate that. We could work with it. <laughs> we had some foundation from which to solve, you know, solve problems and, and to trust each other and be cohesive. But when she wouldn't tell me the truth, uh, it was so devastating because I was like, I... I care about you and I want to, I would love to be able to continue this working relationship, but I can't because with you, I don't know what to expect. I can't predict anything. And that instability is too much. And so that means that this relationship has to end. This may be beside the point. I'm just curious what, what clued you into in this experience? How did you know that you were being lied to? Like what gave that? How do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it was the same kind of thing where there were some things that I knew for sure. Mm -hmm. I had seen with my own eyes <laughs> and I just needed her to be willing to acknowledge them. And instead of acknowledging the things that I had seen, with my own eyes and, and I had experienced multiple things. She, she did that thing where she says, you're seeing something else. Mm. Let me tell you, you think you're seeing this, but let me tell you. And she distorted it. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think that's a common experience mm -hmm. that we're having is like, we're like, I'm seeing this. And someone's like, no, you're not. Let me tell yeah. you, let me tell you what you're seeing. I, and this may be like a tangent, like going backwards in this conversation, but I'm just really struck. You already said how important it is to a human being to be right. It's not just this whim that we're like, I just got to be right. <laughs> it's a need 
it's like being fed because being right means that you're justified that your existence matters that you're that you have a right to be there just like it like it's this deep deep and we so need that it's not you can't dismiss that need like it you know just like hunger or just like you know the need to be loved you can't dismiss the need that a human being has to feel justified to feel right to feel like i'm okay in the universe it's okay that i'm here you know all the things like i'm lovable like it's tied to that and so to be in a place where you know you've made a mistake or you're flawed there was an error in judgment and suddenly you're like i don't feel like i'm okay i'm not right and so you can see the, the temptation the urgent need to do something about that right away i i have to it has to be okay that i'm here you know i have to be lovable i have to my existence has to matter what all those things it's heartbreaking when when our way back to somehow feeling justified and the irony is that we aren't we know that we're not right on some level it's just heartbreaking that we would choose something that would make us even less right and less justified and and it just like it feeds itself it's this monster that just yeah several things that you said kind of highlight what happens i try to remember i think it's called something about dissonance what's the word cognitive dissonance oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah where you Mm -hmm. have like you have what you believe and then you have maybe your actions or what you're doing Mm -hmm. and if what you believe and what you're doing or what you're experiencing are too dissonant then then you get pretty miserable <laughs> you're you're fractured as a matter right. of fact i rem- i sat in therapy once with a doctor who she's like i'm just listening for exactly that for a cognitive dissonance because that's you know i was in there because i was i was talking with her because i was depressed and to her this is like if there's cognitive dissonance, it's going to cause that kind of distress in you. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be unhappy. There's all these, I don't know, psychological, emotional, mental health results that come from that dissonance, from that. This is the reality. This is who we want to be. And these are choices and they're, they're not lining up. Yeah, and, and one, one or the other has to move. You either have right. to move closer to what you believe or you start abandoning what you believe <laughs> and justifying more and more your actions until I think you, you lose part of your inner self. So what do you do, you know, since we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to feel like we're not justified, you know, we're all going to have those moments where we're like, oh, you know, I'm mistaken enough that I'm worried about my worth. I'm worried about my my being in the universe and being lovable. So what do you do where if you start trying to justify and cover up and, you know, lie about it, it just leads to more misery. It's such a powerful thing to just simply say, I was wrong. And I'm going to try and do better. It's just super relieving 
to do that. It gets you back to this place of, okay, it's okay that I'm here. <laughs> I can be lovable. When you're looking at it, when you're caught in a place where you know you've been wrong and you have that initial like, <laughs> I don't want to face that. That hurts and I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right, you know? And so you imagine that it's going to be really painful to say that you're wrong. But the reality is when you finally let go and be like, oh yeah, <laughs> I was totally wrong that there's, there can be a relief there, which is not, it's not what we imagine is going to happen. And I, and I think it isn't always what happens. I think it can be wildly painful sometimes to see a place where we have been wrong. I think I want to share a little bit of Jordan Peterson here in this talk that he gives. He says, you need to develop a relationship with something that is profound and you can, you have that capacity and what could be more profound than the truth? And what would you rather have on your side? He goes on to say, Nietzsche said that you could tell much about a man's character by how much truth he could tolerate. <laughs> and I love that because when I look at my life, I know that there are times when the truth will just wrench at my heart and to accept the truth and see the truth, I will have to take on a high load of personal responsibility. I will have to stop blaming somebody else. And that's really hard, particularly when there's this legitimate, like somebody legitimately hurt you and you want to just be like, and it's all your fault and how horrible you are and, and all of these things. And yet I think if you were to ask yourself in that moment, am I being a hundred percent honest that generally when we're loading blame onto other people, there's some part of us that is not being completely honest. Some part of us that's like, the voice of responsibility, like, well, what was my responsibility in this situation? And, and because I'm, I so want to be justified in the hurt and the anger that I'm feeling, maybe even I'm, uh, I don't know if it's a word, but I, I would say horribleizing the situation. <laughs> and I'm, am I making you more of a tyrant that you are and more horrible than that you are in order to justify these, these feelings and put the responsibility for, my feelings on you instead of looking at myself and being like, yeah, what, what should I, what could I have done in this situation to make things better and not worse? What is my responsibility in, in that? And to like what he's saying, like <laughs> it takes a lot of moral courage and fortitude to face that and to tolerate essentially like that reflection back on yourself and being willing to, look at yourself like like honesty is very inward reflecting yeah and and in opposition to that inward reflection is like blame and anger and accusation and gossip <laughs> and all of these things that are we're, when we're engaging in those things we're able to look out and be like yeah it's all the problems are all out there but honesty says, no, I have to look within myself and identify what's happening in here that needs to be addressed and changed. I think part of the responsibility that is kind of waiting for us to pick it up if we're being honest, like I'm thinking about even, even the most 
the purest victim, even if you're not culpable in any way at all for the harm that's been done to you, we have a responsibility, I believe, we have a responsibility to believe in redemption. So if, if we're horribleizing whoever hurt us, we've, we've just tossed that aside. We're, we've let go. We're lying about the possibility of redemption for that, for whoever hurt us. And for we, ourselves. And for ourselves, we are totally, I mean, the only thing that can justify us in all of our mistakenness and, you know, ignorance and stubbornness is redemption. So what goes for us goes for whoever's hurt us. And in that it's so tempting, you know, even if through no fault of your own, you've been hurt, tempting to be angry enough and lie to ourselves about you know, the power of redemption, that it doesn't apply to this person. They're just too bad. They've hurt us too much. I love that you said that because I feel like, uh, like one of the essential truths that you need in order to be honest is the truth that despite whatever has happened to you, you can heal. And mm -hmm. you have, if, if you have no other responsibility, like you were saying, you have the responsibility to say, yeah, this all happened, but this is my life. I, and it's, I am the owner and the creator of my life. And I can, I can heal. And mm -hmm. I can still take this life and make something of it. And, and that's my responsibility. That's what I, the power that I can take into my hands. And when we're in the mode of dishonesty, particularly in the mode of blame, then we're relinquishing that power to uh, somebody else. And it's interesting to think of that in that that's a, a really subtle form of dishonesty that's so easy to engage in. Marilee, you've been thinking about wisdom and I've been thinking about what does it mean to have an eye single to God's glory? And I think so much of dishonesty is a kind of like you described, Linnea, there's an, we feel like we need to be right. It's self-preservation and defending that need, which in itself is a deception because really if right is synonymous with truth, then God, I am the light and the life and the truth and the way. <laughs> so we're often wrong, but he is not. And so really our self-preservation lies in him, but we sometimes feel like we have to, like it's you know something we have to protect. I remember when Chase was younger, quite young, a small boy. And I don't remember the particulars of the circumstance, but he had done something and he hadn't been honest with me. And I, as I discovered the truth by default, I remember thinking, well, why wouldn't he just have told me? It wasn't, I don't, I don't think it was even something that would have been particularly like <laughs> startling or, you know, traumatic or whatever. I just, and I asked him, well, Chase, why didn't you just tell me the truth? And he looked at me and he said, because I didn't want you to be mad. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that doesn't reflect very well on my parenting, number one. But that self-preservation is interesting. And so I think, yeah, the wanting to be right. And the, this definition, one definition I've heard of pride is when pride sort of dictates what we do, which I think is a being acted upon versus acting, then it's more about who's right. And when we can let go of that and act for ourselves, then we're more concerned about what's right. 
And again, God is always what's right because what's right is what's true. And he is the truth. One way to understand having an eye single to his glory is having an eye single to truth. I, I love that where Chase was concerned about my response to something he did. And so just reflexively, self, self-preservation kicked in and he was like, got to hide that. Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, where are you? <laughs> they hid themselves from him because they didn't want him to be mad, but he wasn't mad. He said, well, you're hiding. You've got these fig leaves. I'm going to provide a better covering for you. (laughs) And he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world by him might be saved because God so loved the world. So I think for me, this is just in my own experience is I'm fearful of what the truth may expose about me when there's conflict and I just want to be right, if I can somehow switch my mind frame to, okay, even though it feels like I'm left naked or vulnerable, if I acknowledge that maybe I'm wrong and this fig leaf is insufficient (laughs) because I want to hide from that. I want to, I want to not be so stupid or so Uh, thoughtless or selfish or whatever else whatever other uncomfortable implication is left if I'm if I'm honest it helps me to think yeah but God doesn't condemn you he just helps you from that place to a better place he provides a covering for your nakedness and so you can look to him and beyond yourself I think that's why he says if his commandments the whole reason for God giving commandments is because of love and to protect us and help us. No wonder he says, first love me. Because what's the alternative? To me, if I'm not loving God first, it's because I'm loving myself first, which is just so much more kind of natural. <laughs> There's this effort to loving God first. But and then next to that, your neighbor as yourself. Because in terms of dishonesty and merely what you kind of described about our culture and division and these polar conflicts between opinions and strife of words well when we when we can love our neighbor we can let go of their opinions and our opinions and really just know that god loves them and god loves us and if we want to do something to our own advantage we're more likely to see how it may be to our neighbor's disadvantage if we're really honest and so we don't we're not as much likely to be into self-promotion or like in this instance with nixon well, what's it going to take at any cost without really measuring the true cost, which I think lies kind of, we trick our, we lose sight of that and deceive ourselves. Then we look to our, we see, oh, there is an implication for other people, even outside. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking. I love that you've made those connections, Leah. Having our eyes single to God's glory, to the truth, where we can't cover everything. We, we will never on our own be justified. It's just trusting in redemption. It's trusting in redemptive power, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us, those who hurt us as well. I love that you brought up the fig leaf thing. <laughs> I, it's been a long time now since I've listened to Brene Brown her talk about leaning into vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It seems so counterintuitive to do that hard thing, you know, to be naked. <laughs> but 
but it's what we it's what we've got to do if we're not going to be miserable yeah and if we want yeah. more light like merrily said yeah. we can keep putting on the sunglasses but this was also a scripture that uh, it's actually in the same chapter of john where that scripture that god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son and that he didn't send his son to condemn us i love that so we're so because we're condemning our like our our gut reaction to our own mistakes is condemnatory i mean that's where we we start to feel like we've got to hide something that's yeah, and just which beautiful is, which is damning because as right. soon as we hide we can't really progress we can't really like Mary Lee said that's a there's a lack of a foundation on which to build or to to go forward with because the the lie is just yeah the sand it'll just wash away but so this other verse that is right after those verses this is the condemnation not that god would condemn us but that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light i think another way to say that is lies instead of truth because their deeds were evil for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light we'd rather hide <laughs> neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved but the message is but i loved you so much i sent a savior so you don't have to hide and you're not condemned the only condemnation is like you said linnea that we'd rather have darkness than light and so we can't progress towards the light so we're stuck in darkness because we choose it over the light not because god would condemn us for our sins or our errors our lies he he would save us from them if we're willing to come into the light and not try to hide I'm just thinking if you have these two parallels, and and I think sometimes we just have never been taught them, or we lose sight of them. So on, on the one side, you have the appeal of dishonesty is that it feels like self-preservation. I preserve, I, I don't have to look at myself in a painful way. I get to, I get to, uh, even though it's a distortion, I get to pretend everything's great. <laughs> you know? Or, or I mean, you know, uh, an even worse case scenario is, you know, that you can continue to m multiply your assets, which is, I mean, that's not just self-preservation. It turns into greed, you know, anyway. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to lose what I have if people find out that I've been... You know, like Nixon's dilemma. So, yeah. yeah. And, well, and I think that we are so our, our society has softened lying and dishonesty. Like, like we have softer words for it, like like prevarication. <laughs> trying to think of other words, but because we <laughs> we just don't really want to deal with it. <laughs> Not really, I don't think. And so, anyway, you have these kind of like this one pathway that it feels so appealing because it looks easy. Like if, I, and we, we start out by saying, it's just a little white lie. You know, mm -hmm. it's not that big. Kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy or a marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> a cotton ball. It's harmless. <laughs> it's harmless. <laughs> Sugar <So> cube. We, <laughs> or, or potentially harmless because we can, we rationalize and justify it that it will lead to a good end. Right. The end justifies the means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, which could be tyranny, right? Because ultimately everyone should have, e have equality 
Um, we want an egalitarian society, so I'm going to make sure it happens. And I might say some things that are not true to sort of make everyone comfortable with that. But ultimately, you'll all be grateful in the end because everyone, I think tyranny could be one of those like extreme examples of a means justifying an end knowing that in some instances that's what has been sold that's the bill of goods that this you know well, anyway that's one example yeah yeah I mean, there's so many examples of that in history you know where s some awful dictator says what he was about like what he wanted it doesn't sound that bad yeah well and if you if, if lie leads to bondage because you become a slave to the bondage, think of, of literal, like, think of things that we've read historically about how people justified slavery or uh, just the oppression of peoples. And they felt like they found reasons why this was actually a good thing and could somehow accept that and, and make themselves like that numbing, getting be past beyond feeling and make themselves or really attempt to make themselves comfortable with those kinds of lies that in the light of day just can't stand up on their own at all yeah. as anything as anything but just evil. Yeah. And I think I, I, we don't contemplate it very much, but like, I don't think we think about Hitler, for example, as evil as everything he did was, I, I'm sure he felt justified I'm sure he had gone down that slippery slope of self-deception and self-justification so that he was sure he was right. If you asked him if what he was doing was evil, he probably would say, no, it, th these are all the reasons I had to do what I had to do. I was listening to somebody talk about, he, he interviewed the, I think the Khmer Rouge was his title of Cambodia, um, who, when there was a communist revolution in Cambodia. I feel like it was in about four years that the, uh, they killed off about 20 to 25% of their population. And this reporter said it was just chilling to talk to this man. And the man, the Khmer Rouge, who had, was responsible for all this murder, and listened to him explain why he had to kill babies. And... Mm -hmm he justified himself in that. And I mean, I think that's part of the point that we need to make is that you, we can so easily look at like this layer of dishonesty and say, well, it's one, it's a little white light. And two, I just, I needed to protect myself. I needed to preserve myself. It was too painful. And we just see, well, this is all it is. But with every concept, like um, I, I associate this idea with dad, like, a way to know if a concept is good or bad is you take that concept and you times it times eternity. <laughs> mm. And you say, if we have a, an eternity of this, what happens? You know? And I mean, what happens is the Khmer Rouge and Hitler and Nazi Germany and, and the prison camps. I mean, hell, if you allow yourself to continue on this path that at first looked to you like, the more appealing path, again, because of that self-preservation aspect, but you look where it leads over a long period of time and without any self-correction, and you end up in hell. And I think as societally, we just have lost sight of that.
probably because we're living in so much distortion, we just can't see stuff. <laughs> but if we could back out of some of the distortion and be like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I can see that blame, you know, all these forms of dishonesty, including blame and resentment and just not being honest with ourselves, lying, that that leads to hell, then, then you would, if you could see that and know that clearly, you would be compelled to say, okay, I am really not interested in is ending up in a prison camp. <laughs> so <laughs> that's maybe a worst case scenario. So maybe as, as painful as it might be, I want to look at like, how do I move in the opposite direction? as uncomfortable as it might be to look at myself and be like, I've got to learn how to really truly be more honest and honest with myself and rid myself of, of blindness and self-deception and do the work that that will take that in comparison to where you'll end up. If you don't leave dishonesty behind and that, that pain is like so much smaller. Do you know what I mean? That, that pain of, mm -hmm. of, examining yourself. Uh, I loved how Jordan Peterson said about this, because he's talking about how difficult it is to be truly honest. Uh, but he also talks, he mentions in within, woven within this, is, is one of the really profound rewards of honesty is to be your best self. If you're dishonest, you don't even know what your best self might be. Do you know what I mean? There, ah, when I, when I listened to him again this morning and when I just, there was something so inspiring and so awakening and enlivening about like, if I was really honest with myself, who, who could I be? You know, um, because dishonesty just stunts your growth. It makes you smaller. It makes you blinder. And there's no way to fulfill your true potential and be the, the power for good in the world that you have the capacity to be, to fulfill, I, I guess, to, to let the, the seeds of divinity that are planted within you take their full, grow to their full potential. That can never happen in the context of dishonesty. And, but how exciting to imagine if I just, if I'm willing to do these painful things, look at what I could do and who I could be. And it's just felt so exciting to me. And he, he says this, he says, I don't think you can manifest who you are without the truth. And so I think it's literally and metaphorically true that the pathway to who you could be, if you were completely who you were, is through the truth. And so the truth does set you free. But the problem is that it destroys everything that isn't worthy in you as it sets you free. That's the price we have to pay to be willing to let go and go through that cleansing process of everything that's not worthy within us be burned away. And he says that. So the problem is that it destroys everything that isn't worthy in you as it sets you free. And that's a process of burning and it's painful because you cling to what you shouldn't be. I just loved that. I loved all the feelings and ideas that, that really awoke in me.
it occurs to me as you're talking about the, it's like this euphoric idea i could be the best <laughs> my best self the reality is it's such a process so what it's not just this one grand leap and we're completely truthful with ourselves there's no self de deception i just think of all of the just over you know my very short lifetime of experience <laughs> just uncovering little by little there's some things that i don't even realize are lies like i just don't i i don't know until i bump up against the incredible pain that you know is the fruit of believing in that lie for long enough and, you know it's painful enough you're like what is this what is this what am i doing what what has led me to this place and then you can start to unravel you can start to unravel the lie and then you can start to be truthful with yourself but it's such a process there's been so many like in my heart i i want to be the best that i am and i believe the truth will set me free but i i haven't so far been able to do it all at once it's been a series and continues to be a series of experiences yeah i think it's definitely a process i really like going back to jordan peterson once again he shares an, an experience when he was young where essentially he started having his co his conscience awakened his conscience awakened and his this this is the this is the true woke i didn't know like maria pointed out what it means to be woke or maybe you did anyway the end <laughs> this is his woke moment i'm probably even saying it wrong but <laughs> well and i have to say that woke has so many negative connotations to me right now, <laughs> but, but if it could be stripped away from all of those. Yes, yeah, just let it go, Marilee. <laughs> and a true, a true awakening. Um, yeah, so this, his conscience basically started saying, you know, what you're saying, you don't believe it. <laughs> you don't actually believe that. And it actually isn't true. And he talks to his students over the years and, and asks them, like if they'd had some kind of similar experience, for example, when you're about to do something that you know you shouldn't do, is there an inner voice within you that says you shouldn't do that? <laughs> and he said, it's pretty much universal that we all have that voice saying, yeah, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and then we generally ignore it and do it anyway. But if we start really paying attention to ourselves and really like several times a day checking in and being like, am I saying things that I truly believe that really resonate as being true to me? And I think, you know, some of the deceptions that came up to me as I was thinking about this Marilee, before you before you share some of those deceptions, I just want to point out that in my experience, the flip side of what you said is also true. So sometimes I have my conscience will make me aware that that's not really what you believe or really what you want to do. And I'll feel uncomfortable and not want to proceed or potentially override that and try to video it. Uh, the flip side to me is that there's sometimes uh, my conscience will suggest things that I ought to do or that I could do or that I could become. And I think that exhilarated sense of reaching the, you know, the fullness of 
the measure of your creation, your potential, like like who you can be, that seed of divinity being nurtured is the flip side where there's promptings or urgings, nudges to do certain things and choosing not to is also dishonest. I think it goes both ways. Yeah, the, the courage that it requires to follow through on the promptings to do something. Like yeah. omission versus commission mm-hmm. sorts of things, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know ultimately this conversation could go on for way too long and because there's so many ways of being dishonest that we could explore and we can't explore them all. But one thing when I, when I was thinking about this problem of like, how do I start to become more honest and, and what are some of the big obstacles that I notice if I just say, okay, Marilee, look at your life and what pops up immediately for ways for you to be more honest and like the first thing that popped up to me was like in arguments with my husband (laughs) where I have just in the last year or two become more and more aware of this sense that's almost in the moment sometimes just after the moment of like yeah you you made him worse than he is in this moment (laughs) and that was not honest or um, you made the situation worse you played up the pain of the situation more than what represents reality and that was dishonest and so that was kind of one of the first things where okay that that's a place for me like Linnea said I I don't know all the ways I'm blind but that's a starting place that my conscious when I asked it brought up to me right away and then the other one that as I again was listening to Jordan Peterson really stood out to me was well, he he said he was talking about himself and the places where he noticed when he was young that he could be dishonest, and he said that it could happen in attempts to indicate to indicate my intellectual prowess mm. when there were competitions of that sort, maybe just the sheer pleasure of engaging in an intellectual argument and winning. And when I heard that, what came to my mind is. What happens in in mob mentality, at, mm. which I think plays over into certain kinds of activism, because there's this energy and euphoria that can be connected with if you're in a group and someone's angry and they're like saying something and they're sounding so righteous and you can get caught up in that energy without stopping to reflect and saying, you know, is that really true? <laughs> Do I really believe that? The energy itself is kind of, this is a weird word, but it's kind of sexy, you know, and and appealing. And so, you know, like the innocent version of it maybe is what happens at football games, <laughs> you know, and you're cheering for your team and you're like, woohoo, and like you just get caught up in this energy and you're not stopping or thinking about anything. You're just enjoying this emotional ride you know and I think the same thing can happen with politics um, and why we choose one political argument or another is just simply that we've got caught up in this wave of of euphoria and (laughs) self-righteousness and this energy and we haven't stopped to say well I ought to like think through that and not just not just ride this wave of emotion because it's so kind of electrifying I should like examine it take a step back like make kind of create an emotional distance maybe from (laughs) this mob mentality and ask myself do I 
do I really believe this? Does it, uh, as I examine it, does it bring good fruits? <laughs> you know, all of those things. And instead of just allowing ourselves to be swept along, because you look at like the horrible things that happen in mob, mob type groups. I think that people who on their own, without that swell of energy to carry them along, end up doing things they would never have done. And if they took a moment to step back and examine what was happening, they would retreat. Anyway, that was the other thing that really stood out to me is like, for myself personally and societally, like uh, one thing that we could all start to really examine in our attempt to be more honest with ourselves. I like that. Linnea, do you have some off the top of your head? Okay, I, I'm going to jump, jump in then, and maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll, you can finish off for us. But yeah, I really liked what you said, Marilee. And when, I, when you proposed this topic a few days ago for us to start thinking about, I, here are some things that I feel like are ways for me in that process, because I like that Linnea pointed out, well, wouldn't it be nice if it just all at once we could have that awakening <laughs> and never look back again, but it seems to be a process of line upon line and here a little, there a little as we go. Um, but Lene also mentioned earlier myopia and that sort of, for me, I feel like so often I think pride, which is a sort of myopia of looking inward, I could Pretty much, if it's the universal sin, I feel like it's hard to maybe impossible to disconnect pride from life. And pride is so self-reflexive. It's self-centered. So as just, I, just really yeah. quick, yeah. define define what you mean by pride. What are you, what are we saying? What is pride to you mm, well, in this in this context? Yeah. I think a few things that I've that I associate with pride are things that I've read in association or heard with it. For example, pride is essentially competitive in nature. Mm. So it vests us against others, including mm. God, because he says, in as much as you've done it to least of these, you've done it unto me. So we can't have enmity or opposition or conflict. Well, conflict I think is natural, but contention where right. the conflict becomes a a pain right. of one against another without pride being a part of it. And, and I think one of the ways, one of the symptoms of pride is dishonesty because we, w we want to not submit to what's best for everyone here or what does God want or another definition of pride is that because it's competitive in nature, it's comparing. So comparison in a way that puts one person above or below another, that kind of comparing, not like, how can I look at your life and look at my life and benefit from the contrast, but like, what makes me better than you? Or are you better than me kind of comparing? Also, I think um, has that same spirit of, of pitting one against another. Um, so that myopia, for me, I can feel like, Marilee, you mentioned potential like a conflict with your husband and where you could identify you're not being honest because you're making him worse than he really is that sounds like myopia because you're kind of hyper focused on the injury or the source of what feels like a threat to you like well it's easier to think of him in this way than to really see myself more clearly and 
how I how the bigger picture of where we are, where we're trying to go, what I've done, what I've said, and how it might contribute to how I'm defining myself or him, or him in this situation. Uh, so, so here's the things that kind of go with that for me. I think that there are feelings that help me sort of identify if potentially pride, which often leads, leads to dishonesty for me, is involved. And the feelings that help me know that I'm sort of, again, my point of reference at the beginning was an I single to God's glory. So the things that I can associate with whether I'm putting myself first, pride, or actually looking to the welfare of my neighbor slash brothers slash sisters or to God, peace. Can I feel peace or do I feel anxious? Do I feel fearful? Do I feel angry? Do I feel love or do I feel enmity or opposition? Can I feel joy that's unrestrained by regret or a sense of uncertainty? Can And, and I think, again, getting... To, to these feelings is a process in itself, but I can sort of identify that I'm in a place where my, if my view is clouded, there's some aspect of truth that is not a part of the equation. And so I, I think in being honest with myself, I'm looking for those feelings that tell me that I'm not subscribing to a lie. And I kind of, I wrote a list of, of things that I feel like I I sometimes accidentally do because really I, I think that it's fair to say that often like a blatant lie um, or dishonesty, I, I'm not inclined at this stage of my life necessarily. I think because it's kind of a slope, I could get there, but I don't want to rob. I don't want to steal, but I might accidentally take happiness from somebody because of my actions or like still in, in a different sort of a way, but, but it's the partial tr truce or the partial lies that can be so tricky. And so I think that he here are some other indicators for me. Is what I'm saying speculative or do I really know as I represent even myself or, or particularly others to somebody else? If they were here, would I feel comfortable with how I've represented them? I think that could tie to gossip or backbiting. When I share my disgruntlement, <laughs> have I first examined it? You know, when I want to be critical, have I first examined it to see if it is myopic? Or like you said, Marilee, like if I were to look at every, if I were to apply this the way I'm looking at this here and now, could it be multiplied as an effective lens for looking at other situations or am I kind of picking and choosing what I want to see here and, and it can't be sustainable in other situations. Um, excuses. I feel like that's one place where I can really work on, am I being honest? Is making this excuse a way to help myself feel less flaky <laughs> and because and is it and is it pride because I have this motivation that I don't want others to see me in a certain way so I'm going to tell them well here's all the reasons why I didn't come through I love that God says what I've spoken I've spoken and I excuse not myself the heavens and the earth may pass away but my word shall not pass away but shall all be fulfilled that is a great standard for honesty can we yeah. do what we've said we'll do no matter what happens, we're going to be true to our word. Because if we couldn't trust God that way, Marilee, you mentioned how trust becomes so crucial in, in establishing 
societies and unity and countering division. Well, can we trust that someone's good for their word? Can people trust that if I say that I'll do something, that I'm going to do my best? I'm not God. <laughs> I'm not there yet, but I, that I'm really working to make sure that I fulfill my word. There's lots of others. Flattering is one. Do I say something to make someone else feel good because I think that they'll like me better because I flattered them? Uh, or, am I, or, or do I choose compliments that are very sincere? Am I willing to offer praise? and extend gratitude for what others have done? Or do I have a sense that, well, I don't want to be stuck on themselves or think they're too good? Or if they are so good, then I'm worse. So I can't, so I'm reluctant to say, that was so, that was so uplifting. That was so inspiring. That was, thank you so much because I don't want to give them that credit because somehow I feel like I'm diminished in it. These are some of the things. That's my list. <laughs> and you're right. It could be, it could go on and on, but there's some. Yeah, Kaylin, think, yeah. <laughs> those were great. I love all of those. I'm so glad yeah. you brought them up. Me Thank too. You. Yeah, let me share. I don't. I I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I I loved. I I would need like a minute. Like, let me go out in my garden and dig a minute, and then I'll have something to add. <laughs> yes. I yeah. P.S. By the way. I like, Marilee, your um, model, your maybe metaphor for, if it's true, if, if this word or this thought or this idea is true, it will endure, you know, the test of time. Like, it, it will last. If it's not, it'll, like, disintegrate and fall apart over time into this ugly thing. You know, in the Book of Mormon, the prophet Alma telling us to plant a word to see, to see if it's true. If it's if it is true, it'll begin to swell in our hearts. And like Leah said, you know, what are the what are the feelings that come from exercising or practicing or, you know, taking in the truth versus a lie? And I think, you know, Alma says it begins to swell within your heart. It enlightens your mind. It begins to be delicious to you. Leah's list is like a, you know, a practical illustration of Alma's experiment on truth. I like that. And what came to my mind, and maybe it's a decent wrapping up space. So Satan is called the destroyer. And God is the creator. Mm -hmm. And those two things in opposition mm -hmm. to each other. And it's interesting that that dishonesty and lies over time always create destruction or bring about destruction. Institutions and um, people and governments and societies in the context of dishonesty uh, crumble and fall and descend into darkness. And then in opposition to that, honesty and truth has has a, a creative power it has a healing power a, a unifying power it brings us together in trust and unity <laughs> i see my daughter <laughs> she's like she's, she's hesitantly honest in this instance should i hide or should i just come out and open hey, Cora? <laughs>
She's been sneaking around back there. <laughs> the, the instructions were stay upstairs, but <laughs> she must have got hungry. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but it's just interesting to look at those things. And I kind of love that, that is this building up and building up something that will last over time and will be a vehicle of beauty and and unity and trust and goodness and all of these things or will it be a, a vehicle of disintegration and instability and division and those two things are embodied in honesty and dishonesty and truth and deceit and uh, light and darkness and I think I'm just really glad that we had this conversation and you know if I had a bee in my bonnet if I could do one thing it would be to restore honesty to the pinnacle in my life that it should be. It's not the little brown sparrow, you know, that occasionally should be coming to my window, but it's, it's the beacon. <laughs> it's the foundation upon which I should um, be building my life and, and against which I should be examining my life, my words, my thoughts, my deeds. Thinking about how we started this, what I thought was an uninteresting character and a little small, <laughs> not super significant thing turns out to be, isn't that interesting? Like by examining honesty, I, I can see something so much more clearly that honesty is this huge and monumental and important thing in our lives. And we need to, I need to, stop disregarding it and bring it to its rightful place in the, the center of my life and in the core of my heart. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us to take yeah, a closer look you. at that. That's been, yeah, it's, it has been, and I anticipate it will be a really valuable exercise in terms of just a, an increased awareness of that. Already, already I see that. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, love you guys. Love Have you too. Day. You Talk too. To you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye.